Hey guys, this is Cody Turner. I am recording this intro in one take, so you're gonna have to suffer through any mistake that I make. I swear to God, this isn't fake. It's my authentic self right now, and I think it's great. <laughs> so I'm back here at UConn on that philosophy grind. My plan for the podcast moving forward this semester is to do a bunch of philosophy episodes. In particular, I want to systematically make my way through the Yukon philosophy department and speak to a lot of my fellow uh, colleagues and professors about the fascinating work that they're doing. There's a, there's a lot of really smart people at Yukon, and I want to get a greater sense of what everyone is working on. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with my fellow grad student and friend Rashid about some of the work that he's doing. In particular, we talk about a paper that he wrote on the philosophy of humor. We talk about a different paper that he wrote on the nature of truth. And we also talk about his dissertation proposal, which is on semantic paradoxes in logic. And in particular, Rashid employs this novel notion of grounding to try to solve a bunch of different logical paradoxes, as well as try to avoid Gödel's incompleteness theorem. So a very wide-ranging conversation about a bunch of different interesting philosophical topics here. Uh, it was a great conversation, and it was awesome having Rashid on the podcast. So without further ado, I present to you Rashid Ahmad. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm Podcast Network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. Storm coming, Mr. Wayne. All right, and we're live. I'm here with my friend Rashid. That's how you pronounce it? Yes, <laughs> that's correct. Thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about three of your papers that I read, one on the philosophy of humor, one on logic and one on truth. Like I said, I thought we could start with the philosophy of humor one and then move on to the truth and the logic stuff. Sounds and good. also, like I said, that's, you're probably going to be educating me. Uh, my ignorance of logic is going to be exposed for the entire world. But <laughs> that's right. That'll be fun. Yeah, I'll try. I mean, even your listeners might not have a lot of background in logic, so I'll try to be um, as simple as possible. Mm -hmm. So I thought before we get to all of that, maybe you could just start by telling the listeners who you are, what you're interested in philosophically, how you found yourself in grad school and philosophy. And I'll give you an introduction at the beginning, but... Yeah, sure. So, um, I'm Rashid Ahmad from Kuwait. Um, in my undergrad, I was working on information systems and business, but uh, I got like, I took my first philosophy class and I just got hooked from the beginning. And I made it a minor and then a double major and then finished my philosophy major and still not done with my information systems major. Hmm. And yeah, at that point I, I knew I wanted to do more philosophy. And I'm working on philosophy of logic, particul uh, particularly paradoxes, um, substructural logic, and I'm also interested in philosophy of math and a little bit about on philosophy of humor. Mm -hmm. I got into logic because I thought it was the only area of philosophy that is black and white. 
but I was definitely wrong. Yeah, that's not. It's not. <laughs> I discovered that in my kind of introductory logic seminar last fall with JC. Oh, nice. And it, it, we'll, we'll get there uh, with all the, because I, I want you to formally distinguish the classical systems of logic from the other systems, but yeah. we can get to all that. Did you choose UConn because UConn is known for logic? I mean, yeah, so, so the looking, philosophy department that is. Yeah, and, and especially my interest in logic um, coincides with only few schools. One of them is University um, Ludwig Maximilian in Munich. Mm-hmm. And I got accepted there, but it's an MA program and I didn't want to take the GRE again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's rough. <laughs> so, yeah, if you look at the faculty here, there are a lot of professors who are working in similar areas um, to mine, like uh, Keith Simmons and back then Dave Ripley, also yeah. JC and Lionel, and Stuart Shapiro as well is working. Um, and a lot of the other grad students at UConn are doing their dissertations or working in logic as well, right? Yeah, and, and even the math- mathematical department, um, they work in similar areas to our um, philosophy department. Mm-hmm. And I've been taking classes from both departments. Mm. Yeah. Okay. It, well, it, it's like the hub of logic here. Yeah, it really? <laughs> yes. I, I didn't really, I mean, I knew that kind of going into UConn, but I wasn't aware of just how deep it went, uh, just with uh, it being the center of the universe with respect to the philosophy of logic, essentially. Yeah. But let's shelf that for a sec and start with the philosophy of humor stuff. So you wrote this. Uh, I really enjoyed the paper that you Thank wrote you. on philosophy of humor. You have this, and correct me wherever I stumble here, so your, your basic thesis for that paper is you consider all these different uh, philosophical theories about the nature of humor, and philosoph- when philosophers are talking about humor, they usually call it mirth, but that's right. besides the point. And you advocate your own uh, novel theory, which you call the humor as inclusion theory. That's correct. And you think that this theory avoids one of the most popular theories in the philosophy of humor is the incongruity theory and you think that your humor as inclusion theory avoids a lot of the counterexamples that are posed against the incongruity theory and you also think that this humor as inclusion theory um, explains why humor plays such an integral role in romantic relationships and other philosophy philosophical theories of humor don't so I thought maybe we could start by having you distinguish the different main philosophical theories of humor mm-hmm. before we get to your theory. So maybe so there's the superiority theory, there's the relief theory, and then there's the incongruity theory. So could you maybe just uh, distinguish those in conceptual space? Yeah, yeah. Um, so basically the, those three you mentioned are the main ones in philosophy of humor. They're not the only ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so the let's start with the superiority theory. Mm. Basically it says that we find something funny or something causes mirth in us um, when we feel superior to someone else. Hmm. Usually whoever is the butt of the joke, we, we feel superior to them. So if we see someone falls, stumbles and falls, we would laugh because we're glad we're not them. We're glad we're better than them. We don't stumble and fall. What? <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Yeah, the superiority theory says it's like a sudden glory. Mm-hmm. Hobbes calls it a sudden glory, right? That's, yeah, that's correct. But as you know, it's not just... So, 
a lot of times the superiority theory is construed as you're finding the butt of the joke funny, but it's not always the butt of the joke, right? That's I think true. you give this example where if you're talking about like word puns or jokes along those lines, it's, yeah. it's weird to say that the word itself is the butt of the joke because that's what you're laughing at in that case. You're not laughing at a person, you're laughing at the word. So sometimes you say um, it can be a kind of in-group out-group phenomenon That's where right. you feel superior you're laughing with a group of people because you feel smart and the other uh, and someone else might not get the word pun joke but you do so you feel smart so it's not necessarily the butt of the joke that you feel That's superior true. to yeah okay so yeah usually if if you get uh, a joke that uses puns you would feel like yeah i'm smart i get that smarter than the ones that don't get that right and i know a lot of people won't get that and that's why i have this sudden glory mm -hmm. just congratulating myself for getting <laughs> it kind of thing um and it doesn't have to be conscious right like it doesn't no, you have to be like I oh think so. i think this is funny because i feel smarter than others it could just be that's in, that's implicitly or subconsciously why you're laughing even though you're not aware of the that's fact true. that that's why you're laughing yeah i, I wouldn't yeah, I would say superiority theorists wouldn't say that you have to be consciously aware of why you find it funny or why you think other people won't get it. Mm -hmm. And you kind of can't. When you're in the midst of laughing at a joke, the moment you abstract and think about why you're laughing, it's no longer funny. That's true. Like to find something <laughs> funny, you kind of can't be philosophizing. You have to be in the moment in yeah. a way. Yeah, leave it to philosophers to ruin even humor to us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Also, for some background, you and I both took this philosophy of humor seminar with Bill Lakin last fall. Yeah, it was an amazing seminar. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> so what about the, uh, the relief theory of humor? Yeah, so the second theory, the relief theory, basically says when we laugh, um, we're basically letting out some pent-up tension. And usually... Jokes start, uh, jokes start with some story and it create, that story creates tension and then the punchline releases that tension. Um, for me, it seems that the relief theory explains um, the physiological effects of humorous stuff rather than explaining why it is causing that relief. You know, why is it releasing that tension? Yeah. Right, it's, it's kind of not explaining what a philosophical theory of humor is meant to explain, yeah. right? The theory is meant to explain why you find it funny, and you're saying that the relief theory explains the effects of finding something funny. Yeah, It doesn't exactly. explain why you find it funny in the first place. Yeah, so, so if you ask a relief theorist why this joke is funny, but on the other hand, joke B is not, just explaining the theory doesn't give you an answer. It has to build something up. Mm -hmm. It has to add to it. Yeah. Okay, so what about the incongruity theory? Because I think, is that the most popular yeah, theory of humor? Yeah, I believe so. Is yeah. that fair to say? Yeah. Oh, by the way, before we talk about the incongruity theory, going back to superiority theory, Yeah. do you know that Jim Carrey is a... He's a, a superiority Yeah. Theorist? Yeah. What? If you watch um, the first episode of comedians in cars getting coffee with Jerry Seinfeld mm. he talks to Seinfeld about um, he says something to Seinfeld like I've been th I think a lot about what we find funny and I think because we feel superior he says that 
Wow. Yeah. I wonder if he's aware of the fact that there is a, an established philosophical theory. Like, do you think, like, did he just have that thought I don't independently? Know. I don't know. But he, he seems like he has been reading about those kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So he might have read that, or maybe he had the idea and read some about it later. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, back to the incongruity theory, the most popular one uh, basically states we find something funny when it violates our uh, mental expectations, but that violation must be benign, right? So, because otherwise it would create stress or um, it would scare people. So basically when you have a, a joke set up, you are creating some expectation in the audience and then the punchline is saying something that violates their expectation. And that's why they found it funny. Yeah, so I have one quote from your paper here. It says, according to Cicero, and this is an explanation of the incongruity theory. <laughs> according, according to Cicero, the most common kind of joke is that in which we expect one thing and another is said. Or in other words, in the words of Freud, we expect one thing and a mother is said. <laughs> yeah, so... so yeah, just to clarify, Sigmund Freud um, did not say this. It's just a joke, oh, play, yes. playing awards on uh, Cicero. Um, but yeah, Sigmund Freud is actually a relief theorist. But it is common knowledge that Sigmund Freud talks a lot about mothers and right. Yeah. Do you, by the sorry, real quickly, do you know what that noise is? It's the air conditioning. Do you want okay. me? Can we stop it or no? Might Hold on. We'll take we'll, we'll take a quick break and come right back, folks. All right, folks. Sorry, we're back talking about the incongruity theory. So, is it fair to say that the according to the incongruity theories? Generally speaking, something is funny only, and this is from your paper, only if it violates our mental, mental patterns and normal expectations. Yeah. That's the basic idea. Yeah. Okay. So, this I know, is... I know in, from your paper you defined it slightly different, right? How did I define it? Um, I can't quite remember. But it's on the same lines, but... On the, along the same lines. Yeah. But this is, uh, this is, I really want to talk to you about this because as I told you in text, I consider myself an incongruity theorist. Mm-hmm. So incongruity theorists, they think that uh, perceiving an incongruity is necessary for finding something funny. It's right. not sufficient, but it's necessary. So in order to find something funny, there has to be some perception of an incongruity. That's correct. And you don't think that's true? No, so, I don't think so. <laughs> So there are these different counterexamples that you give in your paper to the incongruity theory. Yeah. I thought we could just go through a couple of them. So one of them is this personal antidote that you lay out about you're on a bus with your friends. Yeah. Do you know the one I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Explain that one. I was in a trolley in San Diego with two of my friends and we were very tired that night. And my friend started telling a joke that just keeps repeating itself. So it's like a day one and then a day two and a day three and just keeps repeating itself mm. and we all know our friend so well so we, we started laughing because that is so typical of him but we it didn't violate our mental expectations some people would say maybe the joke format 
violated our um, mental expectations because we had an expectation of what a joke should look like and yes. he changed that format but there's a problem with this because my main problem with the incongruity theory is that the notion is so elastic it's traced out like in many different ways right um, the notion of incongruity is so abstract so as to be uh, non-substantial or substantive yeah, it's, it's, it's very it lacks vague. substance because of its vagueness yeah and to add to the story as I was uh, mentioning in the paper maybe I didn't make it more explicit there was a guy next to us who doesn't speak our language we were speaking in Arabic yeah and he started laughing and you can't say that <coughs> anything is violating his mental expectations he just started laughing because he watched us laugh and, yeah and I believe my theory when we get to it I'll get back to this point later mm. uh, explains why he started laughing but I don't think the incongruity theory can. Yeah, I mean, laughter certainly is contagious, and maybe- But why? Right, the fact that it's contagious doesn't, the, it seems like the incongruity theory can't explain that, but your humor as inclusion theory can. But yeah, let's go back to that counter. So you pretty much anticipated my objection. <laughs> but my, yeah, my objection was gonna be when I was reading your paper was that, well, there actually is an incongruity. You're expecting, when your friend's telling the joke and it doesn't stop, you're expecting the joke to end, but he's yeah. violating your expectations by repeating the joke ad nauseum. So there is a kind of perception of an incongruity there. As you say, it's a, an incongruity involving the, the structure of the joke, in yeah, a way. But, but even if you go on with it, um, at a certain point we all realize that he's never gonna stop. He's just gonna repeat what he's saying over and over again. So we created a new expectation, but we still, like every time he says it, we still laugh hard. But aren't you like, like the incongruity part <laughs> has gone. But you're work. implicitly expecting that he's gonna end at some point, right? Like you don't actually, don't so. no, at some so point, somewhere in the world right now, he's still on the trolley. It's <laughs> <laughs> just going on and on. No, but we knew that he's not gonna end it pretty soon, right? Yeah. Okay, well, what about, so there, let's go to another one that you yeah. give. So you're talking about jokes on Reddit, that one. Yeah, Explain so, that one. so some subreddits, you know exactly what they're gonna say. Um, mm. Like some subreddits talk about uh, ending one's life in a jokey way mm -hmm. and usually start with a different setup every time and the punchline is usually the same. Mm -hmm. Um, people still find it funny, um, even Just, though you're creating the story, the expectations, um, you're not violating their mental expectations with the punchline. So there, it seems like there's no perceived incongruity. No, because you are expecting it. Okay, my response to that one was, it's similar to my response to the first one, but it seems like there is a kind of what you might call meta incongruity there, and it's that I, I categorized that Reddit joke when I was reading it under the category of what's sometimes called an anti-joke. I'm not sure if you're yeah. familiar. And yeah, yeah. Anti-jokes are essentially just, um, it doesn't seem like they're jokes. Like here's an anti, like why, here's like an anti-joke. Why, well, I guess this does involve an incongruity. I'll just give you the joke anyway. Okay. I'm, this might actually be undermining my case, but well, uh, why, uh, why can't a T-Rex clap its hands? <laughs> because they're too short? 
No, because they're extinct. <laughs> that that's actually funny. <laughs> yeah, no, there isn't a good group. And that I don't think that's an anti joke. Yeah, anti-joke. I don't think it is either. Okay, forget about the T Rex joke. But, but but I get your idea of about this is the idea. Yeah, with the meta with anti jokes, it's it's pretty much it doesn't seem like it's a joke, but you still find it funny. And I don't the T Rex one wasn't a good example. But the point is the meta incongruity comes in the fact that the anti jokes violate your expectation of expecting there to be an incongruity, right? So for most jokes, you're going in expecting there to be an incongruity. Mm-hmm. So that's an expectation. Anti-jokes violate that very expectation by there not being an incongruity. So it's kind of a meta incongruity. Sure, but... Does that make sense? Yeah, but what if you go to a subreddit, for example, there's a subreddit called not interesting? Because there are some subreddits that are called very interesting or mightily interesting, and there's one that's called not interesting. And people just post very not interesting stuff and you go to that subreddit with the expectations that you're gonna find all non-interesting stuff, but you still find them funny. So the expectation is already there. You're expecting it to be not interesting and... And you still find it funny. You still find it funny. Is there a, is there a meta meta incongruent? I don't know. <laughs> now we're gonna get off an infinite regress. Okay. I know the reason why it's funny. Um, well, yeah, let's, okay, let's get to your humor as inclusion theory. Yeah. Right, so um, there's these counterexamples, we just talked about them, the incongruity theory, and your theory of humor avoids those counterexamples. Yeah, but I think there are some more, like, stronger counterexamples than the ones we mentioned. Okay. Um, I also mentioned a couple of them in the paper. If you know your friend so well, and you know what they're going to say next, and they say it, that causes mirth in you. And you, you laugh because you know them so well, so well and you're expected them to say that. And like finishing they, someone's sentence that you know really well and then you like laugh because you finished their sentence? Something uh, like that? Yeah, yeah, for example. Or you know that he would say, like, your friend has a catchphrase and something happens and you know exactly that your friend is going to say that catchphrase. Right. And you, you still find it funny because... You expected it, not because it violated your mental expectations. Yeah, but could it be that there's still, you know the joke, right? Like there, there are many jokes where someone tells them to you, and you've heard it before, so you know the plot of the joke. So you're not there's an uh, there is no incongruity because there is no the expectation that the joke is violating. But there still might be an incongruity built into the joke itself, even if you've heard the joke before. Right. So even if you're aware of the incongruity, mm-hmm. the incongruity still might exist. But I guess that doesn't work when you're talking about finishing someone's sentences or something like that and so, you laugh. So would that explain repeated jokes? You find a joke funny every time you look at it. Yeah. And Well, if the repeated if the initial joke that I found funny has an incongruity, then that might still uh, obviously be compatible with the incongruity theory. But then what do you mean by incongruity? Because I thought it was a violation of mental expectations. And you already have that mental expectation ready. Yeah. There we go. Um, Yeah, I guess. I guess. I don't know. You're backing me into a corner. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I would have you with the meta incongruity thing. When I was reading, I'm like, oh, meta incongruity. Done. 
okay, I have, but no, what I, I understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And I don't have a ready response to the case where you laugh because, um, like, you, you know your friend so well and you finish their sentences. One way I'd be tempted to go is just to deny that's genuine mirth or something like that. But at that point, things get a little yeah complicated. Yeah. But go, go ahead, sorry. Um, there's another example. Usually they say that comedians, like stand-up comedians, yeah. they laugh or get amusement more than the audience themselves. If they wrote the jokes, why are they getting mirth from it? And you can see comedians tell a joke and laugh at their own jokes. Yeah, yeah, I do it all the time. You laugh at your own jokes. A lot of time, most most of the times, other people don't laugh. It's just me. <laughs> <laughs> That's Yo, good... why is he laughing? That wasn't funny. <laughs> yeah. So why would you laugh on your own jokes if you know exactly what you're gonna say? Because, I mean, this goes back to what I was saying. A lot of times in the jokes that I make, there's an incongruity built into the joke itself. Okay. Even though I know the incongruity is there. So it's not, my expectations aren't violating, but just like the way that the joke is structured, there's still um, uh, an incongruity built in, per se. Yeah, but now we're stretching the word incongruity even more. Mm -hmm. Because now we're saying it doesn't have to violate the audience or... Right. Now yeah, I'm, the one who's I'm making like a distinction between objective incongruity and like subjective. So I'm saying like, I don't find it subjectively incongruous because I've heard the joke before, but there's some kind of objective. So now I'm complicating things and dividing up the concept. Yeah. And, and it's problematic to say objective incongruity. Right. Because it might be a, an incongruity to some people, but not to others. Yeah. It is kind of inherently subjective like because the whole notion is you're finding there to be something incongruous that doesn't align with your expectations it's a, it's a mental jolt yeah in a way yeah it's a mental jolt i think you're slowly converting me on air right now <laughs> i'm so convinced of the truth of it all right let's get to your humor as inclusion theory so maybe just prop that up and then explain yeah. how it avoids the counter examples we just discussed that's good um so the theory i i mentioned in the paper it, which I call um, humor as inclusion, basically says when we hear something that causes mirth in us, uh, or when we hear a joke, the causation of mirth is basically uh, a quick retrospection on some past feelings or past thoughts or past personality and as a result, we feel connected to at least the person who's telling the joke. We feel included in a community, we feel understood, and that's why we find it funny. And maybe the release of pent-up tension is basically um, the relief of, of feeling being alone or not understood. So that's where it's coming from the the mirth is coming from the release of that feeling that's the tension maybe the relief theory had in mind mm-hmm. so in that way the uh, the humor as inclusion theory can incorporate incongruity as a tool to induce that briskly retrospection and can also support the relief theory by saying how it 
releases pent-up tension. So my theory doesn't kick the other theories out of the window, but it has more explained power, as or so I believe. But you do say that, right, it's not... Your theory isn't incompatible with the relief theory. It's not incompatible with the incongruity theory, but you do say that it's incompatible with the superiority theory. In a sense. Um, so if you think of the superiority theory as feeling better than other people, yeah. um, that's the opposite of the humor as inclusion because in the humor as inclusion we find it funny because we feel included, we feel understood, we feel connected to other people. But there could still be room for superiority theory if you think of it as in-group, out-group kind of thing. You, you had that in You mind? took my point. You're just <laughs> anticipating sorry. everything I was going to say. Yeah, I was going to say, I was, because I was reading it, I'm like, wait, actually it could be incompatible with the superiority theory, just be, precisely yeah. because it could be you feel Right, you feel superior in virtue of feeling a part of like the in-group. So yeah. you're, you're, you feel included within the in-group, and as a member of the in-group, you can kind of laugh at members of the out-group because they're not a member of the in-group. So there is this feeling of inclusion, but it's also simultaneously a, a feeling of superiority. Could be, yeah. yeah. Um, but if you take superiority as to be like black and white, not in-group, out-group, Right. Then I don't think they're compatible. Yeah, it is ostensibly diametrically opposed with the superiority theory, just in that yeah. feeling of inclusion versus uh, feeling better or different than someone. Yeah. So, okay. Well, I guess one question before we get to how it avoids the counterexamples is how, right, like, so I feel, if I'm just at, sitting at dinner, for example, with mm -hmm. my family, I feel a feeling of inclusion. Right? Yeah. There are many times in life where I feel a feeling of inclusion, but I don't find it funny. Mm -hmm. So how do you distinguish finding something funny because of that feeling of inclusion, your, th mm -hmm. your theory, versus finding, feeling included in a group, but not finding it funny? Like, where does that mirth come from? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. And that goes back to incorporating incongruity to it. Because I think the difference between feeling included and connected to other people in like a normal setting rather than a funny setting. Um, I think the incongruity could play some part in causing um, a very quick introspection where you didn't expect it mm -hmm. to be. So where you weren't thinking about being connected and included and suddenly you realize that you are connected with that person. Mm -hmm. That sudden realization is the mirth causing in yourself. Oh, okay. So you can kind of wheel in the incongruity theory to distinguish uh, feelings of inclusion that cause mirth and yeah. feelings of inclusion that don't result yeah. in humor. Yeah, and, and I don't deny that, the th uh, maybe I mentioned at the end of the paper that I don't deny that the theory is not fleshed out holy but I think um, as you as you said it might not be sufficient but must be necessary right yeah right you, it's necessary to feel that feeling of inclusion to get humor but yeah it's not necessarily sufficient you need something else yeah maybe that's incongruity it's good me okay so how does this theory humor as inclusion avoid the counterexamples that threaten incongruity theory 
Yeah, so, so if we go back to my story with the friend who's telling his joke over and over again, um, we find this funny because we know that person so well, we, we know how he acts, um, and he's doing exactly what we're expecting. And we find this funny because we feel connected, we feel as um, a cohesive group. And the person who didn't understand our language, he probably found it funny because it reminded him something about him and his friends that they would do. And that's why he probably find it funny as well. So mm -hmm. there is some explanation power. I, I also th try to be very careful not to stretch the humor as inclusion theory as much as the other theories. It's difficult to do so. So that's why I'm saying it's probably because we didn't ask that person why did you find it funny and had him think it over. Mm -hmm. um, if you go to the comedian uh, who laughs at his own joke, he's finding it funny because the audience are laughing and he feels connect connected and understood and included. And that also explains why when you go to a stand-up comedy show, you might laugh harder than you watch a comedy show at home because right. yeah, the laughs of the audience could reinforce the feeling of like a cohesive community, the feeling of being understood, not alone in your thoughts. But that doesn't explain my predicament where no one laughs, but I still find it funny. <laughs> like, I don't feel connected. Um, I mean, that's part, that's partially itself a joke. But, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. there are situations where I'll tell a joke and no one laughs, and I still find it funny. And I'm like, you know what? Screw you guys. It's funny. Yeah. Um, or when you're laughing alone. When no one else is around. Yeah. There um, is no community there. No, but you also have something in mind. Like if, when you laugh alone, um, you heard a joke from a TV or you read a joke and you feel connected to the author or the comedian from the TV. And okay. when you laugh on your own, I try to notice myself um, when I laugh on my own jokes. I try to think of why I laughed from the first place. And usually I had someone in mind who would get the joke. And that's why I usually find it funny. I don't know about other people. This is only like a sample size of one. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, like there are cases and I, you know, I'm just going into counterexample mode yeah. right now, but there are cases where like, I'll just think of like a word pun going back to that kind of joke. Right. And I'll be completely alone. And I'll find it funny, but there, like, there's no one that I'm thinking of, right? I'm not thinking, I'm not implicitly thinking of someone who would find it funny. Uh, the joke itself that I'm thinking of doesn't involve any other human being, but I'm still laughing. Again, I'm just trying uh, yeah, to I, think I, of fringe I, cases here. I wonder if that's true, that you're not thinking of someone else that would get that. Yeah. Yeah. I could be. Okay, well, so... Also wanted to know yeah. when you said sometimes I laugh at, like earlier in the podcast you said sometimes I laugh at my own jokes yeah and we both laughed and the reason I laughed is because I too I too like laugh at my own jokes <laughs> lots of times yeah so maybe there's a little incongruity there though you didn't <laughs> I don't think so I think it's 
because I feel connected. Like right. I feel I'm not alone. So that was a concrete example proving your thesis <laughs> in the podcast. <laughs> That's true. I feel like I went in with all these objections and I thought I was just going to tear you apart. <laughs> very much the opposite is happening. <laughs> but, okay, so after you lay out your humor as inclusion theory and you explain how it avoids the counterexamples that threaten incongruity theory, then you go on to explain how your theory, you say, um, explains why humor plays such an important role in romantic relationships. And yeah. it's able to explain that fact in a way that the other theories of humor that we've been talking about can't. Yes. Maybe say something about that. Yeah, so data after data shows that similar people attract. Yeah. And all of the data are showing that um, people who are in healthy relationships um, usually take sense of humor to be a priority and when you ask anyone like if you're on tinder or something ask the girl um, or the guy uh, what personality traits you're looking for in a partner I can guarantee you that 90% of the time they'll mention humor as the first thing yeah um, yeah and there's no denying that people value humor in a relationship and if you take the incongruity theory or relief theory or superiority theory they don't say why we value humor that much mm -hmm. there's nothing to add to it but when you talk about the inclusion theory is we value humor because we feel connected to another person so if I right. if you go on a date with someone and you tell jokes they don't laugh they tell jokes you don't laugh you feel zero chemistry between the two of you oh yeah but it's over. yeah it. <laughs> it is but if you laugh at almost everything they say they laugh at almost everything you say you feel a stronger connection between you you two even and if you're not physically attracted to them that's true sometimes humor can outweigh it that's true and and when i talk about relationships doesn't have to be romantic ones even non-romantic right. ones friendships um if you think of your closest friends yeah you laugh a lot you have a lot of co-shared humor by co-shared i mean like running inside jokes and i also mentioned that in the paper running inside jokes are the best indicator of there is a strong chemistry or not between mm. you and your potential partner or friends or whoever um because if yeah. If you're close enough with friends, sometimes you have your own language game, you know, like <laughs> where you just telling. There's so many inside jokes that yeah. other people who infiltrate the group can't even understand what you guys no. are saying. They're like, "Are you guys speaking English?" <laughs> that's true. like he just doesn't get it. <laughs> that's true. Um, so, so that's why there is a special bond between you and your friends um, because the inclusion or the feeling of inclusion is only restricted to you too rather than a bigger audience hmm. so the more restriction of the feeling of inclusion the feeling of connectedness is the stronger the chemistry between the two yeah and a lot of times like I'll have I have friendships where I disagree with the person on a lot of fundamental issues politically uh, maybe even ethically there are some parts of their personality i don't really like but we have a, the same sense of humor and because yeah. we have the same sense of humor we're able to be friends despite all the other differences yeah um you you might have like big differences in your beliefs but there are still the reason 
um, the humor works is because you are sharing some experiences or feelings or thoughts on different issues, even if like some fundamental beliefs are different. Right. So, but my thing is, couldn't it be that? Um, couldn't it be as simple as you know we value humor when it comes to relationships because humor feels good. And every theory of humor acknowledges that humor feels good. The relief theory, the incongruity, the superiority, all of them admit that humor feels good. Whether it's a release physiologically or feeling superior, there's a certain pleasure in it. Mm -hmm. All theories acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. So couldn't it be as simple as we value humor so much because it makes us feel good. It induces that pleasure. And all theories can account for that fact. And why does it feel good? Well, according to the relief theory, it would be because of this physiological release that humor causes. Mm -hmm. The superiority theory would say that there's that sudden feeling of sudden glory that comes from feeling superior. And they so they each have their own. The incongruity would be that well, there's just there just is. It's kind of a brute fact that there's a certain pleasure that comes from perceiving an incongruity. But that doesn't explain why it's. That doesn't explain right. Why do and then you could just ask why do why. Is there a pleasure yeah. and incongruity? Okay, well, but the superiority theory and the relief theory have explanations. They do. Uh, like, yeah. I understand what you're saying, and I agree, generally speaking, that the humor as inclusion theory is much better equipped to explain why we place such an emphasis on humor mm-hmm. in our relationships. I definitely, I understand all that, but I was just, again, going in the counterexample mode. Also, uh, I was thinking, couldn't it just be as simple as that? It makes us feel good and other theories can explain it? Okay, could they explain, um, so why is humor being highly rated compared to other things that makes us feel good? So if you ask anyone, they wouldn't mention, for example, um, a certain activity they want to do together that makes them feel good as their priority, or they don't even mention good sex, for example. Those all are other ways of getting pleasure, but they highly rate humor over these. <laughs> right, right. And it seems like the only explanation as to why we rate the pleasure from humor, we, why do we prioritize that over the pleasure from sex? Yeah. When it comes to relationships. Yeah. And only your theory is able to explain that. Because only your theory explains that because it makes us feel connected to the yeah. person. Yes. Okay. And we as humans, don't like to be alone. Yeah. We want to be understood. We want to be included in the group. Again, I'm slowly becoming converted <laughs> as the podcast goes. Yeah, on. hopefully by the end you you <laughs> you'll be agreeing with the humor as inclusion theory. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So then you use um, after you kind of lay out all this conceptual landscape, you propose an idea for an effective dating app at the end of oh, your yes. paper, which yeah. it would be more effective maybe than tinder or bumble or some of these other popular dating apps because your idea is going to incorporate humor and emphasize that so maybe ex- explain your idea yeah so, so i'm hoping that no one listens to this podcast so that they don't take the idea and oh, that's true. <laughs> work on it someone's just like that's uh, a good idea it is yeah, a good idea hopefully much that come no one that listens don't worry <laughs> no, no one listens <laughs> you know that's not a concern <laughs> so basically if you see tinder and bumble it's all on physical attraction oh yeah and i don't say physical attraction is not important in a relationship it's very important of course um but that doesn't tell you whether you're gonna have a connection or chemistry between you and your potential partner Mm. you have to go on a date and 
try to tell some jokes and see if they're funny or not. Um, <laughs> see if but, she likes my T-Rex joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> try that. <laughs> Maybe you can have it in your bio or... <laughs> I just like, open it, even before I say my name, I'm like, yo, so T-Rex, so I can make laugh. <laughs> like, what? That, that, that could, yeah, that could filter some people out. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so Bumble and Tinder doesn't look on these infos. You get other sites like Match.com and OkCupid. You can see more of the profile, <coughs> so you can get a gist if they have similar similar thoughts, similar beliefs, personalities. Hmm. But still, you cannot get an accurate representation whether there's a chemistry chemistry or not. Hmm. Um, it can tell you whether you're compatible or not. That's right. a different thing from being um, connected or you know that feeling where you meet a date. Um, or anyone doesn't have to be a date. You feel that you're compatible with that person, but that it is some. It's missing something. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of. It's more based on. I think I know the distinction you're getting at. That feeling of compatibility is based on physical appearance, maybe mutual interests yeah. that you share. Yeah. Kind of like they they fit the mold of what you think your ideal mate yeah. is. But then you might start talking to them and. That connection doesn't exist. Yeah, and you, and you tell your friends that there is no chemistry between us, even though we should. We're, be. we're basically the same person, but there isn't any. Yeah, you don't understand this, but the reason is um, there are some shared interests, but there are there are some very different experiences, feelings, and perspectives, and humor can tell you whether these three things. Um, are aligned or not. So there was a study in January of this year, 2018. Um, they did a an fMRI scan um, on some students in a college and they showed them some videos. Now I don't know if the videos were like in funny in nature or what kind of videos, but through the activity of the um, <coughs> MRI machine uh, of their brain um, they can tell who's friend with whom without knowing beforehand really yeah just so, seeing how their brain reacts to the videos yeah whoa yeah so an ideal dating app would be something from Black Mirror but we don't have that like a million simulation oh um, yeah I remember that, that episode was trippy yeah <laughs> a second ideal dating oh app God, yeah. would be you'd show people funny videos and do a MRI scanning yeah and then you can tell who's more compatible with who but we don't have that we MRIs on our phones exactly <laughs> we don't have MRIs in our phones so like, let me just scan your brain <laughs> before we get dinner so the next best thing is to have a dating app um, where you don't even have to let people um, work on their profile by answering questions, which a lot of people don't want to do. Right. Like in, if you go to OkCupid or Match.com, lots of people don't answer anything or just a single word answers. That gives you no information. Mm. But if you have an app that is a Chrome extension, for example, or Safari or Firefox extension, and you just do your own um, daily habits on the net you go 
like to YouTube, watch some funny videos. At, at the end of the f video, you can rate the video from one to ten how funny you found it. Mm. And from those ratings, you can collect data, and from that data, you can compare other people. Now, it's not going to be as accurate as an MRI machine because people can find something funny for different reasons. Mm -hmm. um, but it can tell you much better accuracy on who you, you would have chemistry with. If you find the same things funny and the same level of funniness, it can tell you um, uh, whether you are compatible or not, whether you are you have a great ch chance of chemistry and being able to laugh together on the same things. And um, the good thing about the app is it would make money by selling that information of the data collected mm. of what people find funny. Advertisers would love to see that data. Right. Yeah. So how, how fine-grained is your vision? Like if I'm opening the app, like how much information am I going to get about girls that I might be interested in? Yeah, so the idea is when you open the app, it's going to look very much like Tinder. Mm -hmm. So you're only going to swipe right and left on pictures and there is a chemistry rating below the picture. So you just see the rating? You just see the rating. You don't see what they voted for in their funny videos or funny pictures they saw online. But what if, I mean, I guess most people are plugged into social media and everyone is watching funny videos. So there's probably going to be a lot of data uh, that you can use for this. But what if there are some people that they're not binging on YouTube and watching a lot of funny videos. So there just isn't a lot of data to collect for that. Yeah. Um, I guess those are probably rare cases nowadays. I feel yeah, like everyone's I don't online all the time. Yeah, I don't know anyone who wouldn't like read funny tweets or like some funny videos from Instagram, Snapchat, or YouTube. And it'd just be, the data would be, what does this person find funny? What kind of videos are they watching on YouTube? What kind of tweets are they liking? Yeah, and what's the ratings for the videos? Like if you watch a video and has a billion like, but you don't find it funny at all, and you put it zero. Yeah. Um, that tells us something, that tells us what you don't find funny as well. And that's equally as important. Would, again, this might just be me exposing my ignorance here, but would this be a violation of privacy? Like, would you be, I mean, you would, would it be legitimate to have access to all of this personal data? You opt in for it. You opt in for it. Yeah, when you sign up for the dating app. We're not collecting um, data from people who are not users of the app. Right, so you agree to saying, like, you, I will allow you to use my data yeah. in order to generate whatever my chemistry is. With yeah, and, and, and the, the idea of having an, a Chrome extension or something like that is that you're doing the voting. You're voting that to be collected as a data for your dating app. Hmm. You're not voting for your own self. You're not going to get any information from the voting. Right. Yeah. You're only going to get compatible and... Uh, people that share your interest. Do you have an idea for a name for the app? No, I have. I don't. And yeah, it would cost a lot of money to start it. 
Do you actually plan on starting it? Like, is this some? Is this kind I of like an abstract it. idea that you had, or are you like serious about making this happen? I I thought about it of seriously making it happen, but there are some major problems. One problem is that Match.com has a monopoly. So Tinder, OkCupid, and Match are both owned by Match.com. Really? Yeah. The I did not know that. Yeah, Bumble is trying to compete with. Uh, Tinder and Hinge is right now trying to compete with Tinder as well, mm. but yeah, they they <laughs> it's hard to knock out the big companies. Yeah, it definitely is a good idea. I like the like, yeah, I would download the app if you're able to finesse it and make it nice and sleek and yeah, easy to and, use. And I w- I would imagine a lot of people would be in it because if you, as we said earlier, everyone wants to be with someone who shares the same sense of humor. If yeah. you tell them this would give that to you, they would probably try it. But so one problem might be that I feel like a lot of people use Tinder just for one night stands. Like they're not they're not using it for to try to find a long term mate. They're just using it to have to have to fuck someone for one night, <laughs> and that is mostly determined upon physical appearance. It's that's just true. a one night stand. Yeah, but I think that's changing about Tinder as well. Lots of people are not looking for one night stand on mm. Tinder. It started that way, but not anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's people are still going to Tinder rather than complicated ones like OkCupid or paid ones like Match. That much. Uh, yeah, Match. Um, because Tinder is easier. You don't. You wanna go through lots of people with the shortest time possible. Exactly. And the app I'm giving to you is exactly that. Mm-hmm. The extra work you're putting is not extra because it is exactly what you do in your leisure time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have Tinder and Bumble myself that I use. They're awful, aren't they? Yeah, <laughs> they are. <laughs> it's just, yeah, I don't know. I mean, first of all, it sucks because every we can move on, but every girl looks really good looking on it but you know it's fake you know it's a facade just like instagram you know all these photos are filtered and they're not accurately representing how the person actually looks like and yeah but that's a whole nother rabbit hole do you want to move on to the uh true stuff and then the logic stuff sure uh yeah is is there anything else you want to say about the humor stuff before we move on no i think i'm good okay i think you effectively converted me (laughs) Just because of the dating app? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just because of the dating app. Okay, so now this uh, portion of the podcast is definitely going to be you educating me more than me trying to object to your theory. But, okay, so the second paper I read of yours for the listeners is called Let There Be Structures. Mm -hmm. And, wait, is this the true stuff? Yeah. Yeah, this is the true stuff. Okay, so first maybe I thought you could distinguish between the correspondence theory of truth and the coherence theory of truth, right? So philosophers debate about what is the nature of truth? What does it mean for something to be true? And I'm not acquainted with this literature that much at all, but I do know that two of the most popular theories are the coherence theory and the correspondence theory. And in this paper, you lay out your own novel correspondence theory of truth, which you call the structure resemblance correspondence theory of truth. And you think that your correspondence theory of truth is able to avoid a lot of the problems that traditional correspondence theories face. Is that That's right? right? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, before we get to your theory, maybe just could you distinguish coherence and correspondence? Yeah, so 
correspondence theory of truth, which is, I think, also the most popular theory in truth, right. basically says um, the proposition uh, P is true if and only if it is the case that P. So in other words, the proposition snow is white is true if and only if in reality snow is actually white. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's just a simple correspondence between the proposition and the real world. Right, so something isn't, so, so it just has to correspond to the way that the world actually is yes. in order for it to be true. Yeah. And that makes intuitive sense. And I know with the true stuff and the logic stuff, as we talked about, a lot of it can get very nitty gritty. Yeah. So I guess we'll try to keep it as elementary as possible so people listening can yeah. understand. Yeah. But I don't want to be afraid to go down rabbit holes. But yeah, um, yeah, I would prefer to go very elementary for truth stuff because yeah, it's also not my main area of study. Mm-hmm. And mainly I'm looking at truth from a perspective of paradoxes as my main area, mm-hmm. rather than from a metaphysical or um, ontological sense. Yeah, and we'll get to your dissertation yeah. proposal about paradoxes too. Yeah. But, so yeah, what's the coherence theory? So the coherence theory basically says a proposition is true if and only if it coheres with an ideal set of beliefs. So you have this ideal set of beliefs um, if the proposition you're thinking about doesn't contradict your set of beliefs, right. then that proposition is true. If it contradicts your set of beliefs, then it's false. I've, yeah, again, I have to admit my own ignorance, but with the coherence, and we don't have to get too hung up on this, but with the coherence theory of truth, I don't. it initially strikes me as implausible. I mean, how can truth, hmm. the truth is completely detached from reality or it can be detached from reality Mm -hmm. on the coherence theory. Like as long as it coheres with this web of beliefs that you have, then it's true. Yeah. But couldn't that web of beliefs just be completely disconnected the way that the universe actually is? Yeah, so so there are different... um, There are different ideas about what coherence is. Right. And one of them says just whatever coheres with your set of beliefs, but one another one says with an ideal set of beliefs. Okay. So try to make it more objective. Mm. And yeah, um, the coherence theory has many problems, but it fares better than the correspondence theory when it comes to mathematical statement. So when you say two plus two equals four, um, it's true in the coherence theory because it coheres with the other mathematical beliefs that we have Mm. or the other ideal mathematical beliefs. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, for the correspondence theory, when you say the proposition 2 plus 2 equals 4 is true, it's because 2 plus 2 is actually... uh, or 2 plus 2 equals 4... it's actual in the world. But that doesn't make sense. Well... it seems to be ontologically excessive because then you're committed to ostensibly mathematical abstract objects. That's true. Right? You're a realism about uh, these abstract entities. That's true. Yeah, so I remember you saying that in the paper. The coherence theory better explains mathematical truths. And I think you said normative truths. 
potentially, but the yeah. correspondence theory better explains like physical truths. Yeah. Um, okay, well that's that is one objection to the correspondence theory because it's like okay, how do you something is true according to correspondence theory if it corresponds to the way that the world actually is? There has to be a truth maker, right? There has to be something that actually exists to make the proposition true. Yeah. So, as you said, that theory has trouble accounting for mathematical truths. It, all ha it also has trouble accounting for truths about the future and the past, right? Like, what, what, according to the correspondence theory, what makes it true, right, that Abraham Lincoln died in 18-whatever, right? What makes it true? And it seems like, according to the correspondence theory, you would have to endorse some kind of, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you would have to endorse some kind of eternalism about time where all times exist. So the past exists, the future exists, because yeah. if the past doesn't actually exist, then according to the truth, according to the correspondence theory, there is no truth maker to make that statement about Abraham Lincoln true. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So maybe maybe it's true that they need to uh, take the B theory of time to be the correct one in right. the sense that time is the fourth dimension and they all exist so if you imagine a, f uh, a flip book and we are on a certain page the book as a whole exists <laughs> yeah. even though we're in a middle page whether we're looking at the whole book of our life or not it still exists right um, so i'm on page 20 of my life <laughs> or 23 of my life right now page 90 exists out there yeah. right now yeah, but we're just not at that page yet. And just for the listeners um, to distinguish some positions in the philosophy of time, one position is presentism, and that, according to that, only the present exists. The future doesn't actually exist. The past doesn't actually exist. It's just the present. Which is the A theory of time, correct? Yeah, which is the A theory of time. And this this B theory A theory distinction that you're employing comes from a paper by uh, this dude named Taggart. Yeah, yeah. Called the Unreality of Time. Very famous paper in philosophy. Um, and then another theory would be the growing block theory, it's sometimes called, where, and this is kind of ancillary, but I just want to make sure the listeners are up to speed. But according to that, the, the time is like a growing block, block. So the past exists, the present exists, but the future doesn't yet exist. And then eternalism, which is the one that we just discussed with respect to your book example, is the idea that, again, all, all times exist right now. The past exists, the future exists, we're just on a certain page in uh, this eternal four-dimensional space-time worm it, it all already exists yeah so would you say that the correspondence theory is committed to eternalism um, I mean so maybe I, I, I don't think they have to but this is I mean this kind of this is one of the objections you consider in the paper to correspondence theory and it's not just with respect to time but it seems like correspondence theory is committed it's ontologically excessive, right? Yeah. Because it seems like it, it, it might be committed to eternalism or to realism about mathematical objects. But and maybe now we can get into your theory. Yeah, but, but also to, to clarify another big problem with the correspondence theory that usually comes up yeah. is that what is the nature of the correspondence? What is, when you say snow, that <laughs> proposition snow is white corresponds with snow is actually white, what do you mean by corresponds? Like, is there a link between them? What is that link? Yeah, what do you mean? Yeah, yeah. that's so true. That's like a foundational thing that you need to clarify. Right? What does it mean for something to correspond to something else? Yeah, 
So the theory I I give is actually talks about what is that correspondence. So I am a correspondence theorist in a sense. Yeah. But I take things to be made of structures. And basically structures is a relationship between objects and um and there are different kind of structures. There's physical structure. So when I say the proposition snow is white uh, corresponds to snow is actually white. I'm talking about the structure of the the physical structure of snow and the attribute or um, mm-hmm. yeah of, of whiteness, right? Right. Yeah, and I also talk about how a sentence give rise to a proposition mm-hmm. because you can have different sentences that express the same proposition mm-hmm. and that proposition have a certain structure to it yeah I was confused by this I wanted you to clarify this for yeah. me. so when you're talking about the structure of a proposition yeah you're not talking about like the syntactical structure no. of a sentence because as you just said the same proposition can be uttered via different sentences with that, which have different syntactic structures that's correct so what do you mean by the structure of a proposition so if I say, consider the two sentences, so this monk is on your left, mm-hmm. right? That's correct. Yeah. The monk on the... Oh, the, I, think that, I thought you said monk. Oh, monk. I'm like, is there a monk? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a monk, yeah, there's a monk on my left, yeah. Right? And I can say, you are on the right of the monk. Mm-hmm. Both of these sentences are true and they are true for the same reason even though there are different sentences. Right. And the reason is we're talking about the same proposition. Okay. So you can imagine proposition as creating a mental image in your head. Mm-hmm. It's not. It, so I don't take propositions to be subjective, mm-hmm. but you can think of it at the moment uh, as a mental representation of a sentence. So are you a realist about propositions? Do you think there are these have ab- abstract entities that actually exist out there? I, ha- I, I think in my theory I have to be. Okay. Yeah, and I'm also a realist about mathematics. Okay. A realist about uh, morality as well. Because okay. they all have certain structures. I want to get to that because you think that your structure resemblance correspondence theory avoids the ontologically excessive objection that's typically launched against the correspondence theory, correct? Yeah, so uh, um, it avoids the ontological problem that um, the correspondents have where they cannot explain the nature of the um, of the things that they don't believe they exist. Mm-hmm. Like if you have a correspondence theorist who is not uh, a mathematical realist, they cannot explain why 2 plus 2 equals 4 corresponds right, right. to reality. Right. Unless they go and say it's not true, it's just a game, like a formalist approach to mathematics. Mm-hmm. Okay, but, but yeah, before we get there, maybe could you just finish explaining your version of the correspondence yeah, so, theory? Because so, I'm still a little confused. So basically, you have a physical structure mm-hmm. and a sentence gives rise to a proposition, which is a propositional structure. Mm-hmm. 
and if the propositional structure resembles the physical structure so as I was saying earlier if you think of the sentence as a mental representation mm. so if you if I say snow is white you have a mental representation representation of snow being white in your head right if that matches reality then there is a uh, structural <coughs> resemblance which renders the <coughs> sentence to be true but couldn't I just ask well what do you mean by resemblance right like it, it seems you were advocating for this structure resemblance theory in order to avoid the foundational problem mm. that we just discussed about what do you mean what does it mean for one thing for a proposition to correspond to the world what is that correspondence relation mm. and now you've explained that in terms of structural resemblance but couldn't I just say that explaining what structural resemblance is is just as part of a task as explaining what the correspondence relationship is does that make sense yeah um but you can, yeah. When you think about the physical world, you can compare them as pictures. Mm. So I, if I have a painting of you, yeah, you 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 have a clear idea how the picture resembles you. Mm-hmm. So the same idea with the proposition being uh, have a structural resemblance. It's like position of stuff mm. being on the s- same. Uh, like the position of objects and their relationships are of the same as the physical world. Mm. So, for example, the painting I have a few, I can have different painting. You can say this one resembles me more because my eyes are in a distance that is equivalent to the real life, mm. while this one is not. Yeah. So, the same idea. Okay. So, yeah, that that definitely strikes me as, at the very least, less vague than the correspondence relation. Yeah. It's definitely less vague than that. And so it's doing better than the typical uh, invocation of correspondence. Mm -hmm. I think I partially understand it now. I'm still a little confused about what exactly you mean by propositional structure. But I do have an intuitive idea of what you're saying now, just in terms of kind of thinking about it as a mental representation, not syntactic structure, and that mental, you can intuitively make sense of how that mental representation matches or corresponds with just the structure of things in the world. Yeah, and I also don't deny that the, the paper has a problem of not explaining what propositions are. Yeah. Yeah, for, for me, I just say, well, yeah, I guess what is a proposition for the listeners? I don't know. <laughs> Seriously. Um, well, what's like the layman's, like just what's like the dictionary definition of a proposition? Just for people who really don't. I mean, I think most people understand what we're, um, like intuitively what we're saying. Yeah, so if you take sentences um, of the form of, what do you call them? Like you're claiming something rather than asking. Or, an asser- assertion? Yeah. So if you take sentences of an assertion form, hmm. um, those sentences have a certain... So it, it expresses a certain idea. Mm-hmm. And basically that expressing that certain idea is a proposition. But yeah. if you ask me what is the nature of proposition, what is it exactly, I have no idea. Um, one thing, the point of the paper is that 
every theory ha- that deals with only sentences and not propositions have major problems. Right. And the papers that deal with propositions, they also don't explain them. So we're on a s- same level of um, vagueness mm-hmm. <laughs> by using a word like proposition. Yeah. Yeah, I th- and I think that's a good intuitive definition. It's kind of like, what is a number, you know? Do you have to be committed to this abstract thing? But yeah, it's like an idea, and that idea, when you're talking about a proposition, it's an idea, and that idea can be expressed via a variety of different sentences. Like the same idea can be expressed in yeah. different sentences. Yeah, so, so that's a good point. So if you can, when you talk about numbers, they're different from numerals, right? The numeral four, is just a sign. Right. But it represents something. That representation is a number. So you can, yeah, you can represent the number via different symbols in the same way that you can represent propositions via different sentences. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay, so how, I think I have your theory now. How exactly does it do better than the the traditional correspondence theory? We've already outlined one way. It does better because it's less vague. Yeah. And specifying what the correspondence relationship actually is. And how, how else? Um, I know you so address, you don't have to go through every objection. Because I know yeah, you, you I, go I, through a lot in the paper. But yeah, maybe I'm just trying, a few more words. I'm trying to remember the objections I had. because One was the infinite <laughs> regress objection. To the correspondence theory. So like, you yeah. say, Freaky has this infinite regress objection to the correspondence theory. And it goes as follows. According to the correspondence theory, saying P is true means that P corresponds to reality. Now, saying P corresponds to reality is true is to say that P corresponds to reality corresponds to reality. Like just that proposition, P corresponds to reality. Mm. That's true because it corresponds to reality. Then you can ask the same question with respect to that sentence. And it seems like now you're off to the races to infinity. Um, and I fr- yeah, so that's the, that's the infinite regress objection. And I forget how you say your structure resemblance theory. And sorry, I'm not. I'm not trying to yeah, no, like, no, no. just grill you on your paper. <laughs> no, it's fine. But yeah, um, the reason I'm having a difficulty because I didn't read the paper before meeting. Yeah, it's fine. So I read the other two to remember them, and this one I don't remember well. But basically, the idea of um, the infinite regress. Yeah. Um, the correspondence you go on forever without. A good explanation but for me if you say p is uh, uh, the proposition p resembles the physical structure for example yeah um, that makes p to be true right now to say p is true that doesn't the structural resemblance of p is true doesn't resembles a physical uh, structure, but a truth structure, namely right. the structure between P and the uh, physical world. So there is a bottom to it. You can go on forever by saying P is true is true, mm-hmm. P is true is true is true, and so on. You can do that, but that there's still a bottom, there's a foundation for it. Mm-hmm. And the first one is different than the other ones. Okay. Then you're just talking about this relationship between um, truthness and um, the new sentence. 
right. the new proposition. Okay, I think that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think it would be clear with the diagrams I drew. Yeah, it is a, like just for people listening. If anyone's listening, it, it is. Um, it's tough conceptualizing a lot of this stuff if you're just confronting it for the first time without some visual paradigm. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, but you've definitely, you've clarified a lot of the confusions that I had coming in. I feel like I understand your structure resemblance theory now, and especially what you said with respect to how it is more precise in specifying what the nature of the correspondence relation is. Yeah. Do you want to move on to your dissertation proposal yeah. now? Sounds good. Okay. So you're really going to have to help me here. But my basic uh, understanding, I, I tried to read the paper and understand it as best I can. So correct me if I'm wrong again, but so your basic thesis is that you're utilizing a particular conception of groundedness mm -hmm. to explain away semantic paradoxes, um, like the Curry paradox and the liar paradox. So what's the first question I want to ask you here? Let me look at my notes. Oh, okay. First... Well, I guess just explain your thesis okay. in a few words, and then I can ask questions as we go. Okay, so maybe we can start by explaining what is the liar paradox to have just an example of a paradox. Yeah, that's a good one. So suppose if I wrote on a paper in front of you, this sentence is false. Mm. And I ask you, did I write something true or did I write something false? <laughs> if you say you wrote something true, the sentence is saying of itself to be false. It's so, true that it's false. <laughs> yeah, so it's false. Right. If you say it is false, that's exactly what the sentence is saying. It's saying I am false. Therefore, so it must be true. It's telling you the truth. Right. And the paradox being is that if you assume to be true, it comes out to be false. If you assume to be false, it comes out to be true. And there's never-ending loop. Mm -hmm. And you can think of paradoxes as leading you to loops of truth values. By truth value, I mean truth and false. Mm -hmm. Or that leads you to an infinite regress where a sentence tells you the next sentence is false, the next sentence tells you the next sentence is false, and so on, and you have like an infinite list of sentences. So you're either caught in infinite regress when it comes to paradoxes, or you're caught in an unending loop. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so basically, I take these kind of things to be called um, ungrounded. The first one, which is the liar paradox, was self-referential. And it is ungrounded because it takes you into a loop, a never-ending loop. The second example that you go from one sentence to another sentence infinitely many times, this sentence is ungrounded because you never reach an ending. You never know whether the first sentence is true or false if you follow the other sentences because it never ends. Okay. But it's not self-referential. And the grounding, ungroundedness uh, <coughs> would tell you more about the nature of paradoxes. One is that they are not all self-preferentials. We had one with an infinite regress. Second, is that the Curry paradox, the infinite regress one? No, about? the infinite uh, regress one I have in mind is Diablo's paradox. Okay. Where it says all the sentences below me are false, 
and the sentence below that says all the sentences below me are false and so on oh i see yeah so if you take any one okay. of them to be true um suppose sentence five let's do sentence three Sen sentence three says everything below me is false mm -hmm. let's suppose it is true mm -hmm. and sentence two says everything below me is false including sentence three but we've already agreed that that's true we agreed to the sentence to the, uh, three to be true right. um, but sentence so, two so sentence two is false mm. which means everything below two is true okay but we said everything below three is false so yeah so sentence four is both true and false at the same time and now you're off to the races yeah so it's just like flip switches right. never ending in right. a never ending way okay so i just want to be again just for the listeners i want to be crystal clear because this is abstract stuff so we have the liar paradox that is an example of a self-referential paradox where you're caught in this loop because yeah. it's referring to itself this sentence is false if it's true it's false and then there's the curry paradox that is an example of this infinite regress and both the self-referential loop case and the infinite regress case are cases of ungrounded yeah sentences. because you never hit the ground so you never know whether the sentence is true or false never right. have an ascertained truth value mm -hmm. and this is cool. Yeah. <laughs> this is really cool stuff, man. So, one, one thing to note that is important is that not all self-referential sentences are paradoxical or ungrounded. Mm. For example, this sentence has five words. It's referring to itself. Is it true? Yeah, I just counted. It, five is, <laughs> five it is true. It's true. So, whether if it didn't have five words, it would be false. So, it's still, you can tell whether it's true or false. There's a determinate truth value that you can arrive at. Exactly. A bottom, so to speak. A bottom. Also, if I tell you... Despite being self-referential. <laughs> yeah. Also, if I tell you um, the sentence written on the board um, of our seminar room is false. Right. Is this sentence I uttered true or false? You have to go and check whether the what is written on the board. Maybe it says <laughs> this sentence is true. Yeah, like, yo, yeah, you're going to send me off on a whole, like, scavenger hunt. <laughs> Give me two hours, I'll be back. Be yeah, running. but in theory, in theory, suppose it has something factual written there. Right. In theory, logic doesn't care about whether we can um, go and check. It cares about uh, whether the truth value holds. Hmm. So in order to check whether my what I told you is true or false, yeah. you can check whether the sentence on the board is true or false mm -hmm. and if it leads you back to me to what I've said then you've created a loop and you have ungroundedness right so what I want to clarify here is that we are interested in an idealistic logic rather than what human reasoning can do because our reasoning can be faulty and we cannot um, determine some truth values or for example if I told you the first thing Socrates said um, uh, as, a, as a kid as the first sentence he uttered was true right. you can never know the truth value of this mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean it's ungrounded mm -hmm. it's our limitations rather than the limitation of logic mm -hmm. 
isn't it just quickly isn't there a dispute in logic about what logic should be doing some people think logic should uh, be the project of kind of constructing this idealized language don't yeah. other philosophers think that logic should conform to how we employ ordinary language yeah that's true that's true okay. and uh, I guess the second one or the latter is more into linguistics and philosophy of linguistics right. than philosophy of logic and yeah you, you're right some people think that logic should be idealistic um, like how we should uh, reason rather than how we actually reason mm -hmm. yeah some other people say no we should we shouldn't bother with an idealistic system we should only bother with how we reason mm -hmm. and you're concerned with an idealistic the idealistic question okay so Okay, so what is your conception of groundedness that you're trying to use to uh, resolve or avoid these semantic paradoxes that we've talked about? Yeah, so basically those paradoxes rely on a, a rule, a transitive rule in logic that says if A then B, if B then C, therefore I can say A then C. For example, if I say um, Steve is related uh, to Noah, Noah is related to Mary, I can say Steve is related to Mary, mm -hmm. right? Um, so if you have this rule, the problem with paradoxes is that once you get a paradox in your system, you can prove everything else. And we don't want logic to prove everything else, everything. We want logic to prove only true stuff. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to have logic to prove that Santa Claus exists. Mm. Um, Just so, quickly on that point, aren't there systems of logic that, and this might be a really big question, but aren't there systems of logic, well I think that I know there are, there are systems, because I took JC's seminar yeah. last fall. <laughs> He's, uh, yeah, but so, there are systems of logic that allow contradictions right normally you would true. say it can't be the case that both p and not p are true either p is true or it's not right yeah. but there are some systems of logic that's allow that it is it could be legitimate to make that move and say yeah it's actually the case that p and not p are both true that system of logic would allow for paradoxes to exist right or no yeah um yeah so it would allow contradictions to exist um but that logic is also restricted because if you think of classical logic what it is taught in every bachelor's degree in philosophy mm -hmm. or almost every um, yeah so those logics that have contradictions restrict the logic that is in a sense weaker than the classical logic in a sense, they can't say everything they can, uh, classical logic can. So Why not? It seems like they would be able to say more because they allow for contradictions, right? No, um, but you get less inferences because there's some restrictions on the rules. I, okay. I don't remember well of um, JC's class. I think FDE restricts modus ponens, if I remember correctly. Yeah, you might be right. FDE is the system of logic that allows for contradictions. Yeah. 
one of it, it yeah tells both contradictions and vagueness in a sense right so yeah the, the, that would be that it, it could be the case that gluts. there's okay gaps and gluts yeah so okay so there are contradictions where p and not p are both true then there are cases where it could be that neither p is neither true nor false it, can, it doesn't have a determinate truth value. Yeah. What are gaps and what are gluts? So gaps are neither true or false. Okay. And gluts are both true and false. Contradictions. So some people would say the liar sentence I told you at the beginning, the one I wrote on the paper. It's a glut. Um, it's a glut. It is both true and false because if you assume it's true, it's false. If you assume it's false, it's true, then it must be both. Mm. Um, but the Gaps problem yeah the problem with paradoxes is that they lead you to prove everything and fde or um lp that's the other one right yeah i think so um, so fde allows both gaps and gluts le or uh, lp lp allows yeah uh, gaps and not gluts or gluts and not gaps gluts not, not okay. gaps and k3 allow gaps right and yeah, the idea is that when you go FDE or LP, you restrict the rules so that they don't give you everything. But now you restricted your rules of inferences as well. And my task is something similar. Um, I restrict the rule of transitivity. If A, then B, B, then C, mm -hmm. therefore A, then C. Mm -hmm. I say, but my restriction doesn't... Uh, get rid of the cut rule or the transitive rule it only restricted to cases where there is a paradoxical sentence by paradoxical here I mean ungrounded sentence mm -hmm. because some some ungrounded sentences are not really paradoxical mm. but if the middleman the B and that um, mm -hmm. uh, rule is ungrounded then it must be blocked and in that way, you block all the paradoxes with a uniform solution. Could you explain more on that front? A uh, uniform solution? Yeah. What so is a uniform solution? A uniform solution. Some people think that, for example, liar paradox has a different solution than Yablo's paradox. Because one's a loop and one's a regress? Yeah. And has a different solution to Curry's paradox, which uses a conditional statement rather than um, a negation. Right. Um, so they give different answers to all of these. And some people like, I believe, Graham Priest, argue that there should be a uniform solution. To all paradoxes. To all paradoxes. Mm -hmm. To find... So my, my task is to find what's causing those paradoxes and is there a way to stop it without losing a lot f from our classical logic? Okay, so you want to preserve classical logic and try to provide a uniform solution to these different semantic paradoxes yeah. that have different structures. Okay, and how exactly does your middleman move do that? I'm yeah. still unclear on that. So, so all of these paradoxes we've mentioned, mm -hmm. Uh, the last step where you go from having an ungrounded sentence in your in your logic to proving everything, mm. that step is blocked because the last step relies on the transitive rule. 
How so? How does it rely on the transitive rule? Because if you look at the proofs I had in, in my paper, um, it has something implies an ungrounded sentence, for example, a liar sentence. Yeah. And that liar sentence implies, oh, sorry. You can get the liar sentence without anything on the left hand. What do you mean the left hand? The left hand of the turnstile. Okay. So, so you can prove the liar sentence without anything. Mm. So you have a liar sentence. Mm -hmm. And the liar sentence gives you uh, nothing. By nothing I mean on your right hand side is empty mm -hmm. of the turnstile. What is a turnstile again? Sorry. It's, it's uh, entailment. Okay. So if you can entail the liar paradox without anything on the left, mm -hmm. and the liar paradox entails everything, yeah. because it's empty, um, with the cut rule, you can get rid of the liar paradox. Now you can say you can entail everything without anything. And the, by the, the cut rule is just the move of denying transitivity when the middleman is an ungrounded proposition or sentence? Yeah, so I deny the cut rule when the middleman is ungrounded. So the cut rule is the transitive rule. Okay, the cut rule is the transitive rule. Okay. I'm still a little, I have to admit, I'm still a little unclear. And this might just be because of my ignorance, not because you're not explaining it clearly. I think that's the reason. <laughs> but I'm still a little unclear as to how the liar paradox invokes transitivity. How is transitivity related to the liar paradox? So one thing is to notice that the whole thing I'm working on is on uh, substructural logic. Mm. So in substructural logic, uh, we use sequent calculus rather than um, a deduct deductive system. So if you had a logic class, you probably did some deduction system where you get a set of rules and you just apply these rules to a set of premises mm -hmm. and you get the conclusion. Yeah. Um, the sequent calculus, on the other hand, have two kind of rules. They have operational rules that works with the connectives, so like modus ponens and stuff like that. Mm. And on the other hand, they have structural rules, which are only about the structure of the sentence. So we don't touch the connectives, we're only touching what's inside. Oh, okay. I don't um, think we did that in JC's class. No, I don't think so. Um, so those structural rules, one of them is a transitive rule called cut. Okay. And in order to prove the liar paradox proves everything, mm -hmm. so in order for the liar paradox to be problematic to us, uh, you need to employ that transitive rule. That's okay. one of the things that you need to do. That helps. Yeah. yeah. So it definitely was my ignorance. <laughs> because, yeah, we definitely just used deductions. We didn't invoke any of those structural rules. So I think yeah, that's why... Because so I, I understand everything. The only missing piece was me not understanding how the liar paradox is related to transitivity. But yeah, you, you, you can also think of it, if I'm not mistaken, um, um, the, the transitive rule, if you want to translate it to deduction, mm. you'd be working with modus ponens.
Mm. So you can think of it as blocking modest ponens when you have an ungrounded sentence as your antecedent. Okay. So how how would that apply to the liar's paradox if you put it in the conditional form? Yes. Is that easy to explain? Or? Yeah. Um, so if I have a liar sentence, um, implies whatever you want, mm. and say you can prove the liar sentence out of nothing by contradiction, mm -hmm. and then you do a modest ponens and get whatever you want. Mm. And you can prove anything. In a deductive anything. system, yeah. Right. Because if you have the liar sentence, you have P and not P at the same time. Right, so modus ponens for those who don't know. I just want, I want to make sure we're not getting too in the weeds here. I think we've done a good job, but it's uh, uh, an argumentative structure and it goes if P then Q, P therefore Q. Mm -hmm. It's deductively valid, which means that if both the premises are true, then the conclusion has to be true. Right, so if, if you put that uh, where P is the liar paradox, it's always going to be true. So if you insert the liar paradox in for P into the modus ponens structure, you can seemingly prove anything, yeah. is what you're saying. And you're employing your cut rule to ensure that that's not the case. Yeah. Okay. To block that. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, but I think it's I think. better done in sequent calculus because... <clears throat> to like put your finger right where the problem is like mm -hmm. very exactly so what's the next step in this project because this this final paper that we've been talking about here which what was the let me just read the title of that so just for the listeners uh, the first paper that we talked about was called humor dating and connections the humor one then there's the let there be structures the truth one and now the logical paradox stuff is called ungroundedness cut and provability and that was your dissertation proposal yeah right yeah so, so, so what's the next step so the point is when we do those things with the uniform solution by employing the notion of groundedness and ungroundedness yeah uh, we get some weird results and promising results if it works if there is no big problem with the ideas uh, behind the groundedness and groundedness like if we cannot create revenge paradoxes then some of the results would come out I believe that it would show that the incompleteness theorems of Gödel can be avoided and this could mean different things that could mean what Hilbert sought um, in having everything to be everything that is true is provable mm -hmm. Um, it could also mean the logicist um, account is possible in some way mm. it could also mean there's this thing called informal provability and formal provability mm -hmm. so when mathematicians work in, in mathematics they work in formal provability but when they explain the steps that is informal proving so not within a system, but outside the system, like a meta system. Mm -hmm. So usually, because of Gödel's incompleteness theorems, informal provability is different than formal provability. Like what you can prove inside the system is different from what you can prove 
uh, in a meta sense. Okay. But if my notions are correct and we can block the Google's and completest theorems, then those two notions, informal and formal probability, are aligned. Mm. And I don't know what the implications of of that. And yeah, I have to seek those implications. Okay, so you're using um, your conception of groundedness, which involves the cut rule. Your vision transcends resolving these semantic paradoxes. You're also trying to employ this toolkit to try to avoid Gödel's incompleteness theorem. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And 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 that's where you're. That's where you're at right now. Right now, it. I'm still dealing with revenge uh, paradoxes. What do you mean by revenge paradoxes? So. Um, the paradoxes don't like being resolved. They're coming back. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, so for example, if you say, um, if I tell you this sentence is false as the beginning, we started with the lie paradox. Right. You say, okay, let's say it's not true, nor false. So it's a gap here. Mm -hmm. So that's your solution for it. Mm -hmm. And I tell you, okay, what if I write this sentence is either true Oh, sorry. Either false or gappy. That sentence. This sentence is either false or gappy. Could I apply a glutty solution to that? If you say it is, <laughs> <laughs> you can add glutty, and it's still gonna hand you hand you back, because if I say uh, okay, this sentence yeah. is not true. Right. In a gappy sense. That, right. In the gappy sense, that's true. That it is not true because a gap is not true and not false. Right. So there's a distinction again for the listeners. There's a distinction between something being false and something being not true. Yeah. Those aren't the same thing. Right. Yes. Once once you employ a gapiness, they're not the same. Thing. Once you employ gapiness, they're not the same thing. Okay. Okay. So basically, there are other ways to get a paradox by just adding disjunctives by adding universals even if you were trying to apply like the paradox will still rear its head even if you just apply the gappy solution to it yeah so like there are two you just take the normal liars paradox this sentence is false there are two potential uh solutions that you could say you could say well it's just a gappy sentence it's neither that this sentence is false that sentence it's neither true or false or you could apply a glutty solution and say well it's both it's both yeah. true and false but you're saying now you can uh, modify the sentence and make it just add these disjunctions to it, these or yeah. statements. And at that point, that simple gappy or glutty solution of the paradox doesn't work anymore. The paradox rears its head again. And yeah. that's the revenge. The revenge of the liar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it always hands you back. Like even the notions of groundedness and ungroundedness. Um, suppose I say this sentence is either false or ungrounded. Okay. So this sentence is either false or ungrounded. Yeah, so if it is a liar sentence, mm. um, if it is a liar sentence, then we would want to say it's ungrounded. So it is true. So it's neither false nor ungrounded. But if it is true, it's saying I'm either false or ungrounded. So it's either false or ungrounded. Uh-huh. So you're still going back and in the forth. paradox. Yeah, between being true and being false or ungrounded. Because one of those disjuncts has to be true in order for the whole yeah. sentence to be true. Yeah. So can you employ 
does your cut rule work when you're trying to resolve the revenge paradoxes? Can you employ your cut rule there? Um, or that's what you're working on right now? That's Yeah, that's what I'm working on right now because I also don't know how a sentence like that uh, can be utilized to do a... Um, to do a paradoxical proof like the liar mm -hmm. because you have to get rid of the disjunction or use it as a whole right kind of thing so it's still I'm not there where I'm comfortable with doing the proofs of them and yeah and seeing where the problem is <laughs> well I wish you luck <laughs> thank uh, you uh, you def I've definitely learned a lot from this podcast, honestly. Yes. You especially, you definitely made things vivid for me and the correspondence stuff we were talking about. And I feel like you just educated me a lot in the logic stuff. Like and I'm hopefully you are now I'm gonna a humorous inclusion theorist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm going to walk into the Yukon department just uh, going up to people, talking about gas and gluts, <laughs> acting like I'm an expert. Hey, how about those gluts? Am I right? Am I right, Keith? He's getting glutty around here. <laughs> All right, but is there anything else you wanted to bring up? No. Covered a lot. Thank you so much. This Thank was fun. I had it was. Yeah, that was really interesting. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Till next time. <laughs>